Is it right for a Christian to fight for what they want? And by that I mean not like put up your dukes. I mean to strive and struggle and fight for it. Is it right for a Christian to treat life like a race or a contest or a competition? Is there any room for courage and determination and strenuous effort in the Christian life? Now, some of that might seem obvious, but I spent most of my young, especially teenage years, thinking that I needed to shudder and put away and even put to death the excited, competitive, driven side of myself in order to be a good Christian. But now I know better. The Lord has taught me. And the fact is actually almost the opposite of that. Without great effort and great energy and great enthusiasm, you will never see the kingdom of God. Look at how Paul put it in 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27. He said, do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things, and they do it to receive a perishable wreath but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. The Apostle Paul, at the very least, did not think that the sovereignty of God precluded his responsibility to fight hard, to give it everything he had, I love how he says this in the first verse that we read. In in the race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize. He doesn't go, so run to get your personal best. He says, no, run to win. Paul says, if the Christian life is a race, you better believe I'm coming in first. If it's a fight, you better believe I'm going to be the one holding my gloves up at the end of the the fight. And as we're going to see in our story tonight... God delivers us from sin by his sovereign grace, leads us to the promised land, and then gives us a command to get into the promised land and clear out the giants. God does not say, I've cleared out the giants for you, now in you go. God says, I've brought you here, here's a sword, now get to work. God did not save you or even create you to be a lifeless, robotic marionette. You just kind of flop around and everything that happens to you is just God's determined grace happening to you. God's grace is an active gift. He hands it to you. He doesn't give you the promised land cleared out of giants. He gives you the strength and the power and the will to get into the promised land and clear the giants out yourself. He's created you to be a conqueror. A conquistador, the kind of man against whom hell cannot stand. That when hell wakes up in the morning, the work whistle goes off, they groan because they know they got to deal with you. On this chapter, Israel is going to stand on the edge of their promised land, on the edge of abundance. On one side, it's going to be wilderness and desert. On the other side is going to be a fruitful land filled with fearful giants. And the question is going to become, which way are they going? Because here's what we need to learn. Failure is an option. It is possible. You can go back because they were about to. If you want abundant life, you better fight for it. If you don't want abundant life, don't worry. The devil will let you off easy. But let's get into this. Story, verses 1 through 20, with that thought in our minds. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers you shall send a man, every one a chief among them. So Moses sent them from the wilderness of Paran, according to the command of the Lord, all of them men who were heads of the people of Israel. And these were their names. From the tribe of Reuben, Reuben, Shamua, the son of Zakur, from the tribe of Simeon, Shaphat, the son of Hori, from the tribe of Judah, Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, underline that one, from the tribe of Issachar, Egal, the son of Joseph, from the tribe of Ephraim, Hoshea, the son of Nun, underline that one also, 
From the tribe of Benjamin, Palti, the son of Raphu. From the tribe of Zebulun, Gadiel, the son of Sodi. From the tribe of Joseph, that is, from the tribe of Manasseh, Gadi, the son of Susi. From the tribe of Dan, Amiel, the son of Gemali. From the tribe of Asher, Sethor, the son of Michael. From the tribe of Naphtali, Nabi, the son of Vophshi. From the tribe of Gad, Guel, the son of Maki. These were the names of the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land. And Moses called Hoshea, the son of Nun, Joshua. Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan and said to them, Go up into the Negev and go up into the hill country and see what the land is and whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, whether they are few or many, and whether the land that they dwell in is good or bad, and whether the cities that they dwell in are camps or strongholds, and whether the land is rich or poor, whether there are trees in it or not. Be of good courage and bring some of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the season of the first ripe grapes. Structurally, this brings us to the second camp section of Numbers. We're using a geographical outline to go through this book. For the first 10 chapters, they were at Mount Sinai. They were camped. Then we had a travel section for chapters 11 and 12. Now in chapter 13 until chapter 21, when we will camp at, we will uh, travel again, we're going to be camped at Kadesh or Kadesh Barnea, as it's sometimes called. We're going to be in this camp section for 40 years. More on that later. And they're going to send spies into the the promised land. It says here that God told Moses to do this. Deuteronomy 1 verse 22 gives us more information. It says that it was the people who suggested sending the spies. And there's no contradiction here. What we can just see is that the people probably asked Moses. Moses asked the Lord and the Lord approved it. And they send 12 spies from the wilderness of Paran, which is in the south of the land of Israel, which makes sense if they are coming to the north. That's where they're going to be coming from, the south. And they're going to camp at Kadesh Barnea. And they picked these 12 men who were tribal leaders. And some redaction theorists believe that because this list of leaders is different from the list of leaders before, then clearly these are two different authors and the Bible can't be trusted. But it just makes sense when you realize before we're talking about who's the elder and the chief in charge of this tribe. This one is about which elder slash chief of your tribe is able to handle a grueling 40-day journey as a spy. So there's really nothing to be worried about there. I'm sure you weren't, but I like to bring these things up in case you ever encounter them. They had to be fit men in order to do this. And of note are Caleb, who is of the tribe of Judah. The tribe of Judah is always looking real good in the Bible. Well, not always, but more than the rest of them anyway. And the other one is Hosea, whose name was changed to Joshua. Now, what this is, the name Hosea means salvation. What Moses did in choosing his right-hand man was he added the name of the Lord to the beginning of that name. Yah, like Yahweh, Yah, Hosea. But when you, you change it like that, the vowel changes and it becomes Yahashua. And through the process of Anglicization, we get Joshua. So it's not just salvation in his name, it is Yahweh, the great I am, the Lord in all capitals, is salvation from the tribe of Ephraim, the son of Nun. Now, it says that this was the time of the first ripe grapes, which is July, more or less. And we know that since they departed roughly in May, this took them approximately two months to get there. Now, if you look at this later on in the Bible, it's going to say that it was an 11-day journey from Sinai to Kadesh, which is like, well, what took them so long? First of all, it's millions of people. Second of all, don't forget that they were hit by a couple of plagues along the way. God sent a fire among them. God sent a plague among them. Uh, Miriam had to be waited for for a week. So it was a rough go. That's why it took so long. That's maybe why they got sick of the manna, but that's why it took them that long. But this is a historic moment for Israel. The promise of the land that God had made to Abraham in Genesis 12, and Isaac in Genesis 26, and Jacob in Genesis 28, it's all about to be fulfilled. Before, they were just one small clan among many in the promised land. Four centuries plus of bondage in Egypt, and now they're coming into that land which had been promised. And the promised land in the Bible is a picture and a symbol. Of course, it was a very real thing, but it is a symbol of the life that God intends for his people. 
And the, the promised land serves in the Pentateuch itself and throughout the Old Testament as an image of the return to the Garden of Eden, of a return to the presence of God. We've talked about the chiastic structure of the Pentateuch, that Genesis, they leave the promised land, go to Egypt, then they come back, they meet God in the middle, then they come back at the end, and in Deuteronomy they enter the promised land. It's a picture of what God was doing over the whole big, annoying word, meta-narrative of Scripture. This is what he was doing, was bringing us out of the depths and bringing us back. So it's important to know that. We began in the garden. When we left the garden, we were driven out into the wilderness. And at the end of the Bible, we're going to see that we're brought into the new heavens and the new earth, which is described an awful lot like the Garden of Eden. The tree of life is there. There's a river that heals all the nations. So them coming in is a very significant thing in the typology and symbolism of Scripture. We see this throughout the Bible. Look at the life of Jacob, for example. Jacob is born in the land as a son of the promise. But because of his sin and deceiving his father and his brother, he has to flee into the wilderness. While he's out there, he meets God at Bethel. He encounters, uh, what's his name, Laban, and has to flee from him, which we've talked about this. Laban was kind of the worst version of Jacob. It's a picture of repentance. I'm not going to be the sneaky guy anymore. And then he comes back and crosses the Jordan into the promised land, and God is able to use him. So that's the, the, the picture that the Bible paints for us so often. We've seen it with several individuals. We're going to see it with all of humanity, and we're especially going to see it with the children of Israel here. It's so hard to overstate the significance of this, this first foray into the promised land. They're doing their recon mission, and everybody is waiting with all this anticipation for 40 days, and then we get to verse 21. So they went up and spied out the land from the wilderness of Zin to Rehob near Lebo Hamat. They went up into the Negev and came to Hebron, Ahiman, Sheshai, and Talmai. The descendants of Anak were there. More on them in a second. Hebron was built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. And they came to the valley of Eshkol and cut down from there a branch with a single cluster of grapes. And they carried it on a pole between two of them. The idea is it's really big. They also brought some pomegranates and figs. That place was called the Valley of Eshkol because of the cluster, that's what Eshkol means, that the people of Israel cut down from there. So they cover the whole promised land. Zin is in the south. Lebo Hamath is at the northern border of the promised land. So they go from the south all the way to the north and all the way back. I'm sure they split up and they went different places. They also mention Hebron, which is important because Hebron is where Abraham had lived near the oaks at Mamre. And it's going to be uh, the first place where David is going to rule as king for seven years. I, I love these little notes that they give that tell us that this was definitely written around this time. Because they say Hebron was built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. You're like, well, I don't know what Zoan is either, so that doesn't help me. But they did when it was written. Zoan, actually, I learned this, by the way, the Greek name is Tanis. So if you've ever seen Raiders of the Lost Ark... And they say, they discovered Tanis. That's Zoan right here. So that adds nothing to our Bible study, but that might be where you've heard that before. But they start in the Negev, which is in the south, up into the hill country of Hebron, and then off into the rest of it. The valley of Eshkol is to the west of Hebron, where they got all those enormous grapes. And that cluster, that Eshkol of grapes, was a sign to the people of the abundance of the land. Go find out, is this land any good? And they come back and they've got a big old thing of grapes between them and pomegranates and figs and the idea being, yeah, it's really good. Don't think of Israel as an arid desert. We get this wrong a lot. Maybe that's because of all the, the cartoons and the movies we've seen where everything's always brown and dusty and dry. and that, That's not the case. It's a fertile place. It's right on the Mediterranean Sea. It's well watered. Parts of it are dry, of course. But it's a fertile and desirable country. Everyone wants it. That's what God promised his people. And the promised land for the Christian. Remember, the promised land represents what God wants for his people, the best desires of God for his people. The promised land does not so much symbolize heaven in your day-to-day life. That's part of it. But more often, it is used as a picture to describe the abundant life in Christ. John 10, verse 10, Jesus said, The thief, that's the devil, comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. 
Not just eternal life then, abundant life right now. Once you have been delivered from slavery, not from Egypt, but slavery to sin, Romans 8, 17 tells us, like we sang tonight, you're no longer a slave. What you are is a son. Just like Jesus was the son of God. You are now a son or daughter of God. And if you say, well, that's taking it too far, that's how far Paul takes it. He says that if we're sons, then we are heirs, co-heirs with Christ. Whatever Christ inherits, we inherit, which is what Jesus told us, right? I've come to deliver everything to you that my Father delivered to me, which is everything. Later on in Revelation, Jesus is going to say, I'll grant to the overcomers to sit on my throne with me. So, yes, it's that intense. An heir with Christ, abundant life, not just someday, but right now. And we're going to give a list of five blessings that you experience in the abundant life of Christ. And we're going to use this list several times tonight as we come back to it to describe the different challenges and, and the different uh, blessings that are available. But what does it mean to have abundant life in Christ? What does it really mean to live the Christian life? Number one, you have peace with God. You are no longer an enemy of God. God is on your team God has brought you to himself. He's washed you with his blood. He calls you his child. That is the biggest block that goes in place in your Christian life. In anybody's life, you can be as rich as you want, but there are millionaires and celebrities and athletes and stars and superstars that will take drugs and overdose every day because they got everything they ever wanted and it wasn't enough. Because the one thing that could not satisfy them, they didn't have. Or the one thing that could satisfy. And that's it. They don't have peace with God. You have forgiveness of your sins. You have a clean slate. You have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you. You have the hope of eternal salvation. That's worth the price of admission, isn't it? That I don't have to die when I die. I get to have eternal life with Christ, with God in heaven, welcomed there. That's the most important one. Number two is victory over sin. We are not slaves to sin anymore. Romans 6 makes that abundantly clear. You do not have to sin anymore. Are you still tempted to sin? Yes. Why does Paul say? Because you're still in this flesh. Your soul's been regenerated, but until your body is resurrected, you're still going to struggle. But we can overcome every sin and every temptation in Christ. Bible says no temptation has overtaken you except that which is common to man. And God is faithful who with the temptation will provide a way of escape so that you may endure it. Sin can become a non-factor in the life of a Christian. Can you ever become so holy that you just don't, aren't even tempted to sin anymore? No, but you don't have to sin. You don't have to bear this struggle the rest of your life. That's not how God sees it. He said things to people like go and sin no more. Number three is completion of character. This is this personal transformation. I'm not just talking about not doing bad stuff anymore. I'm talking about everything about you being restored and redeemed. God takes you out of the mud, as the scripture says, out of the dunghill and places your feet on a solid rock. He doesn't completely transform you from one person to another. He takes the real you, gets rid of all the sin, fills you with his Holy Spirit and says, now you can actually be you. People say things like, well, Jesus wants me to stop being who I am. The opposite of that is true. You don't know who you are. You're so blinded and corrupted by sin, you don't know. The Bible says all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable that the man of God may be complete. That comes from that Greek word telos, the goal, the perfection of all your life. God wants to develop you to the fullest he wants you to pursue those interests that you have and do them well. He wants to draw out your strengths and minimize your weaknesses. People will say things like, God wants to give you all the dreams you've ever wanted. God doesn't give you your dreams. God restores your good ones and says, now let's make you the kind of person that can go out and get it. Number four is love in your relationships. Every relationship. Love does not just mean romance. Right? Romance is a very specific thing for a very specific relationship. Love is something for everybody. Your wife or your husband, your son, your daughter, your grandkids, your neighbors, your friends, your church congregation mates. I don't know what word is there for the brothers and sisters in Christ. Your enemies. 
You're going to have enemies. This country could go to war and we'll have officially declared enemies perhaps. But we're still to love them. To have an understanding and a respect for them that transcends our status as enemies. The Lord can make your relationships work. That is not a point of stress and complaint and groaning in your life, but it's the best part of your life. It's a thing that provides a foundation for everything else in your life. And number five, this is my favorite one, at least for tonight, permission to thrive. What does it mean to have an abundant life in Christ? You have permission from Almighty God to thrive. You have a reason to get up in the morning. People who say things like, I want to go to work, but what's the point? I'm just going to die someday. We go, I'm getting up because this life has been handed to me by my Lord Jesus, and everything I do now is going to echo forever. Permission to get up and get after your life. Permission from God to excel. Permission to dream, to struggle, to achieve all those scrappy, competitive parts of your life that sometimes we feel like we've got to put away to be a good, nice Christian. The Lord says, no, I want you to get out. Isn't that what God created Adam to do? God didn't say, Adam, I've planted a garden, now don't leave. He said, I've planted a garden, you keep it, but here's what else I want you to do. I want you to go out into the rest of this world that isn't a garden. I want you to tame it. I want you to have dominion over it. I want you to take this something that I've made and make something great out of it. So when you are in Christ and walking in his abundant life, the Lord gives you dominion in every area of your life. Permission to thrive. Psalm 84 verse 11 says, The Lord our God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. How many good things? No good things. Now the danger here is to spiritualize all this. Is all this, yes, okay, yes, that means salvation. I'm not talking about your salvation. I'm talking about your sanctification. I'm talking about your life now. We start at the cross, but we have to move on. We say, is it wrong to move on? No, in fact, the writer of the Hebrews rebuked the people for not moving on. Because all you know about is the basics, repentance from dead works and the laying on of hands. It's time to move on and grow up. This affects every area of your life, from your mental life, to even the material things that you own, from your personal life to your professional life. It's all abundant. Well, no, I don't believe in this kingdom now stuff. Okay, me neither. I believe that Jesus is coming back to reign on a literal earth for a literal 1,000 years. But here's the cool part. For those who are in Christ, you get to taste the kingdom now. We receive the first fruits now. We get to experience the kingdom everywhere you go and exalt Jesus as Lord. Luke 17, 21 says the kingdom of God is in your midst. One day it's going to come in glory and in its full consummation, but you are living the kingdom of God. You are an ambassador. You're a walking embassy of God's kingdom. Point is, you don't have to wait. All these blessings, peace with God, victory over sin, completion of your character, love and relationships, and permission to thrive are awaiting you if you are in Christ. If you've left your slavery to sin behind, you've crossed the waters of baptism, you've made it through the wilderness, which strips away all of those sinful habits and those, wor- those terrible things that held you down, you've died to yourself, you've come to a good land. A good land. So for those of you that were like me or are like me still, when you feel those stirring in your soul to to get up and get after it, don't let Satan squash that down. Ah, that's carnal. You don't want nothing to do with that. I really just feel like I could go out and just conquer the world today. Oh, so you think you're better than God? God's the one that does all those things. Your job is just to sit there and let it happen. That's not Jesus. In fact, we know that's not Jesus because what are we going to see next? Verse 25. He did not hand them the kingdom, or hand them the promised land, empty. Verse 25. At the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land. And they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told them, we came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. Very unfortunate word here in verse 28. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. 
The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev. The Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. The point is, it's all full, Moses, and a lot of them are giants. It took them 40 days, which is interesting because people will say things like, well, 40 days is just a round number the Bible used. It doesn't mean 40 days. It can mean whatever you want it to mean which makes me wonder why they use the number 40, but anyway. But then they say things like, but I mean, it probably would take about 40 days to get through the land. It's like, why couldn't Moses have just said, come back in 40 days? I don't understand why we have these weird debates, but people do. But they come back to Kadesh, they show the fruit, they admit the land is good, but they do not recommend going in. They describe these fortified cities, cities like Jericho, like Jerusalem, the strength of the people, the numbers of the people, and they refer to the Anakim. Who are the Anakim? Well, they are the descendants of Anak. The Anakim were giants descended from demons. I'm not just making that up. That is what your Bible says. Verse 33 tells them that they saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak who come from the Nephilim. You might go, okay, I know what the Nephilim are. Well, the Anakim are a different tribe of Nephilim. Genesis 6 verse 4 tells us, Before the flood, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man and bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Nephilim. The word Nephilim means fallen ones. And it says, the sons of God, which is an Old Testament way of talking about angels. Remember in Job, it says all the sons of God came together to present themselves before the Lord, and so did Satan also. The B'nai Elohim is the Hebrew there. Came into the daughters of man and bore children. These are half human, half angel, or shall we say demon children. And here, it seems we have more of them. Usually in the Old Testament, they are called Rephaim. You know the story of Og, the king of Bashan? There's never been a name for a giant. Og is a pretty good name. As he was huge, he had six fingers on, his, on each hand and six toes on each foot. He had an iron bed frame so that wouldn't, it wouldn't break. And uh, he was a Rephaim, one of the Rephaim. They're also called in different languages, the Moabites, the Ammonites, and the Edomites call them either Zamzumim, Avim, or Emim. They're talked about in Deuteronomy chapter 2. I am, Im is the plural form in these Semitic languages. So these fallen ones were the worst of the abominations on the earth. It says in Genesis 6, as we read, that the sons of God came into the daughter of men, bore children to them, mighty men, men of renown. Now we go, wait a minute, that only happened before the flood. Read it again carefully. It says in Genesis 6, 4, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days, meaning the days of Noah, and also afterward. And right here in verse 33, it says that the Anak were of the Nephilim. The sons of Anak were of the Nephilim. Every culture has stories of some giant, super-powered, half-god, half-man hero. Now, when we Disneyfy it, we make it like, oh, the wonderful hero. But you go back and read those actual stories. These were not good people to be around. Read the stories of Hercules, the stories of Achilles. Read the Iliad again. You, you know, you read the Iliad and you kind of get lost in the fact that so-and-so was a son of Poseidon and so-and-so was a son of Zeus and so-and-so was a son of uh, Aphrodite. But if you read that, these heroes and the fights they're having, it talks about how they would crush all of like the regular soldiers and everybody did their best just to get out of the way when Achilles and others were fighting. And what that tells us through, of course, I'm not saying that's a, necessarily a true story, but these legends that come down to us, according to Genesis 6-4, tells us that there were these people that were descended from these false gods that were a blight and a curse on the earth. People like Hercules and Achilles. Cuchulain was the, the, Scot or the Irish one. Merlin was supposed to be the son of a demon and a man. Maui and Polynesian culture, these demigods. So do we believe in this stuff? It's in your Bible. It's in your Bible. And in fact, the New Testament tells us that those demons are the ones that God locked up in the abyss, which is God's demon prison at the center of the earth. That's in your Bible too. I love talking about this because it's kind of like, wait a minute, that's all in there? It is. And the book of Revelation tells us that at one point, God's going to turn those demons loose on the earth again. Remember the scorpions with the women's hair that sting people and they have pain and they can't die? That's those demons that God's going to turn loose again. 
Which is one reason among many why God is going to send these people into the promised land. And what's he going to say? Don't spare anyone. Men, women, children, beasts, I want them all gone. Because this was not just God's judgment upon certain nations, but the the Canaanites and the Jebusites will survive in in reduced numbers. But the Anakim are going to be all wiped out. Because God is like, this is an abomination and I won't have it. Joshua 11 tells us that Joshua and the army will drive them out of the land and they will only be hiding in a couple cities. Gaza, Ashdod, and Gath. Do we know of anybody who was big and strong and scary, who came from Gath? Goliath. Goliath and his four brothers. And that's what David did. David completed the job of driving out the Anakim, the Rephaim, the latter-day Nephilim from the promised land. So when they see these people, they go, "Uh -uh." (laughs) uh-uh. And by the way, we also have Egyptian writings where they are warning people, if you're going to travel through the land of Canaan, you've got to watch out for the sons of Anak. Because it says they're big, they have hairy faces, and they're wild. So that's history. That's not even your scripture. That's history. And God is going to send his people to drive them out. But everybody comes in, and they see tribes of people as tall as diving boards at the pool. And they go, nope. (laughs) They turn around. The point is, for our purposes, the promised land is occupied. It's not open for the taking for someone just to stroll in. And can I say, your abundant life in Christ is not just waiting for you to step in and set up shop and start picking out doilies. It's a fight. It's a battle. It's a conquest. Christianity is often compared in the New Testament to a battle against the forces of hell. Ephesians 6, 12 says, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, I'm going to build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The implicit metaphor there is his church is attacking the gates of hell. We're not hiding from the gates of hell. We're attacking the gates of hell. And he says, and you will win. Because the devil, the enemy of everything that is, desires to thwart and ruin whatever God does. He wants to ruin every disciple. He wants to say, fine, you can come out of slavery, but you're not going into that promised land. I'm going to keep you in this desert for the rest of your life. And it's going to be such a miserable testimony that nobody else is going to come and leave. We often believe, usually through a strong tendency towards the sovereignty of God in our theology, that God will just hand you all the blessings of life. And that if you try to strive for them or try to attain them or try to go for them yourself, you're somehow doing something wrong. But that is not how it works. He gives you the grace and the power to accomplish what he's laid in front of you. He leads you to the promised land and said, now go kill some giants. Why don't you kill them, Lord? I'll help you, but you've got to swing the sword. Every blessing of the abundant life must be conquered. I like that word conquered because we don't like it anymore. We hear conquest, we go, ooh, it's so medieval. Well, it's the word the Lord used. Get into that land and conquer some stuff. Like what? Like the same five things we went through before. Peace with God. Now, I'm not saying that you have to go out there and grab your salvation for yourself. But Peter did tell us, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You are saved by grace alone. But you've got a daily fight for what? For faith. Not saving faith, but daily faith to believe his word. You've got to commit yourself and struggle and strive to be committed through doubts through the hardships of life that want to wreck your faith and the arrogance of your own mind when somebody else tries to throw some proof against God in your face. You're still saved, but these things are trying to drag your faith down. And Jesus always tells us, according to your faith, be it unto you. So Satan works overtime to destroy faith. That's the fight. It says, I'm going to believe this. I don't care what happens to me. I don't care what I read somewhere. I'm committed to the person of Jesus Christ. I have bowed the knee and sworn fealty to my king, and I'm not changing. It's a fight. You know it's a fight, don't you? Some days you you feel like you could walk on water. Other days you're like, am I even saved? I'm not going anywhere, but man, I just am not 
feeling it today. It's a fight. You've got to conquer that. You say, Lord, help me. He will help me. But a lot of times the conquest is keep believing even though you don't feel like it. Number two, victory over sin. Yeah, you've got to fight for that too. What are you fighting for? Self-control. Ah, the Holy Spirit gives us victory over sin. Yeah, of course, but how? The fruit of the Spirit is love, etc. What's the last one? Self-control. Some people say, well, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you're not doing anything. That is absolutely not true. The fruit of the Spirit, the mark of a man that is so full of the Holy Spirit is that he is in control of himself. He is able to make the right decision at every moment. So when you have to have victory over sin, God gives you the way of escape, but you've still got to walk through the way of escape. You've got to walk through the temptations. You cannot just go with what you feel in the moment. Temptations can be strong. Some days you go, why am I wanting to do this? I hate this and I've given this up and I haven't thought about it in months because you're being attacked, spiritually attacked. What do I do? You fight. You fight. You say no. You get in the car and you drive away from the temptation. You just give your phone to somebody and say, don't give it back until tomorrow. You fight. It's a struggle to have self-control, but you've got to have it. Number three, completion of your character. What are we fighting for? Wisdom. Wisdom and knowledge and insight. The first part of that is learning to understand who you are. When you say, God, make me more like you, what does he do? He goes, all right, here's something that's not like me. Okay, Lord, what do you want me to do with that? He goes, deal with it. I want you to deal with it. You lie all the time. So stop lying. That's hard. You, maybe you have these irrational, emotional responses to things. Go, God, why do I get so angry? God goes, would you like to know why? I'll tell you why. And it's not always pleasant, is it? When you're praying, God, what's going on? You can almost, at least with me, you can feel God sucking you into yourself and showing you, like, this is you. And it's got to stop. He also shows you what's good about yourself. He says, this is, isn't this cool? I got this, this diamond and this big pile of rough. Let's stop chipping it off and getting those diamonds out of there. Number four, love in your relationships. Yeah, you've got to fight for that. You've got to fight to show brotherly kindness in your relationships. Because people are frustrating. You most of all. And if you don't take responsibility for your relationships, they'll falter. What does it mean to take responsibility for relationships? Uh, we're staying connected even though you don't want to. I know you're kind of sick of me and tired of me, but I'm going to keep on loving you. I know you're angry. And I know that if we don't talk to each other today, that we probably won't talk to each other again. So I'm going to pick up the phone. I'm going to let you yell at me. And it might not end well today, but at least we've still got that connection. When you feel like your husband is just growing distant, and you can kind of see him drifting, and maybe you feel like he's just kind of getting, he made his decisions in life, and now he's got some kids, and he's got a job, and he's starting to feel like, oh, did I do something too soon? What else could my life have been? And maybe he's having a rough time. It's up to you, woman, to step up and say, no, I'm going to love him anyway. Flip that, the same thing is true. Take responsibility for your relationships. When you see another marriage faltering, you step in and say, I'm going to love y'all enough to make you really uncomfortable and help us work this out together. You've got to fight for it. Well, we're just drifting apart. Well, don't accept that. Don't accept that. I just don't think we're not connected like we used to. Then fight for it. Number five is permission to thrive. You've got to fight for every step of your life's journey. No one is handing out great jobs and trophies. Well, I went to college. Where's my, where's my million dollars? That's not how it works, my friend. You've got to work hard. You've got to get out there and hustle. God expects his people to hustle. Read Proverbs. It'll make you feel lazy. Go to the ant, thou sluggard. Well, it's, it's 4.45, and I really need more time to finish this, but it's time to go home. Or you can fight for it and stay late and finish. Or you, you got to get out there and get after life. It's not just going to be handed to you. Every kid wants to be a professional football player. Only very few put in the work it takes. Even the very talented. Don't we see that every year? Some very talented guy gets drafted and he just can't hack it because he can't put in the work. He can't put in the time. He's always been able just to coast. Now he's around people that are just as good as him and he's not ready. So people that are less talented are put ahead of him because they're willing to fight for it. 
Philippians 3, 13 through 14, Paul said, Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, we like that part, but here's the next part. Straining forward to what lies ahead. Think of a sprinter finishing the race. He throws his chest out to get across the line. I press on toward the goal for the prize. Paul says, I'm going to win the prize. I'm going to get first place. Y'all can do whatever you want. I'm getting first place of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. No one's going to hand you abundant life, not even God. God is going to lead you there, give you everything you need, and say, now go slay some giants. By myself? Nope, I'll be with you, but you've still got to do it. You've still got to swing the sword. You've still got to duck the, the spear thrust coming your way. You've got to get knocked to the ground and spit out a broken tooth and get up and keep going. But I'll be with you. But you've still got to fight. You've got to go out and take it. That's what the Lord is telling his people. There were giants in the land. God won't remove them, but he'll teach you how to kill them. Isn't that cool? That's so much better. It's like, just, oh, we're going to come into this flowery land where everything is nice and wonderful. God goes, nah, it's got giants in it. What do we do? You've got to kill them. Giants, yeah, half-demon evil giants. Heroes of old. A tribe of people like Achilles and Hercules. Now go to war. They were scared. But look at Caleb in verse 30. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him, that would be Joshua, perhaps they had some assistance, or sorry, the other ones. They said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw in it are of great height. They kind of have an obsession with being tall in Israel, don't they? That's how they're going to choose their king later. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim. And we seem to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seem to them. So that we've been given the good report and the bad report. Now, Caleb quiets the people. He says, guys, let's go. He initiates this conflict because Caleb is ready to go. Everybody else is too afraid. Look how their distress just increases. We're like grasshoppers, man. And they looked at us and they're like, hey, what's up, squirt? Y'all are little folks, aren't you? We're like hobbits walking around. Moses, we can't do it. They were very impressed by difficulty. Isn't that a, just here's a little side note. Isn't that a problem we have in our country today? We're very impressed with difficulty. We're way more obsessed with how the system is structured badly and how this guy can't get ahead and these people are downtrodden and this thing. And there's very little people being impressed with the spirit of an American to stand up and overcome that. We've got to get that back. Christians at least should not be impressed by fiery furnaces or giants or anything else. Got to have a disdain for sin. Like, don't you know my God? Don't try to scare me with that. The destiny of Israel here is balancing like on a knife's edge. They're either going to listen to Caleb and storm the castle, or they're going to give in to fear and they're going to stay outside the promised land. And that same conflict rages every day over every part of your life that has not yet been brought into the abundance of Christ. Are we going to go or are we going to run? Consider Jacob. Jacob had finished his whole journey, and all he had to do was cross the Jabbok Ford and speak to Esau, and he was ready to run. He had to fight with God. God wrestled him to the ground to make him do it. That's what happens. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane faced the same temptation. Matthew 26, 41, he said, Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation, for the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. You need to hear this. It is possible to miss out on the promised land. You can fail. You can spend the rest of your life without enjoying any of the privileges of the abundant life in Christ. I'm not talking about salvation now. That comes by grace through faith alone. But I'm talking about failure to experience the peace of God. You have it, but to really know it, you know there's a difference. To experience love in all your relationships to fail to experience accomplishment in your life, God-given striving and overcoming. Everybody's ceiling is different, but everybody has the ability to feel what it's like to overcome in Jesus. But 
Some people, 1 Corinthians 3.15 tells us, are going to enter heaven as through fire. They're going to come in and all they're going to have is their eternal soul. And that's great. But the rest of us are going to be standing there with treasure troves that we've laid up for ourselves in heaven. The judgment seat of Christ where crowns are given out and rewards are given. Gold, silver, and precious stones. Jesus said, be shrewd enough to know where you got to put your treasure. Knowing that sober fact that you might miss this, that you might be missing this now, we've got to examine these two possibilities. So look at verses 1 through 4. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said, isn't that what the devil does? He tries to redirect why you're upset against somebody else. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt! Or would that we had died in this wilderness! Why is the Lord bringing us into this land? To fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Think of the children, Moses. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. This mighty host of 600,000 soldiers dwelling in the presence of the Shekinah glory of God was unmanned by this wicked testimony. They wept and they grumbled and they said, I'd rather die in the evil I already know than face the uncertainty of what lays before me. And here's the thing. It wasn't even uncertain. It was certain. God was with them. But they didn't want to look at it that way. They could only look with carnal eyes. That it will be hard, it will be dangerous, and we might lose. All those things were true. But they chose to return to the slavery of sin. Then enjoy vigorous battle in the name of the Lord. I'd rather go back and save my life. Just a little sliver of life. Rather than go out and live I can have my life or I can risk my life and gain something great. And people make that choice every day. I'd rather hang on to the little nothing I have that's making me miserable and making everybody else miserable than risk it and try something else. Jesus said in Matthew 7, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow And the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. So many people would rather be slaves than warriors. They'd rather be a slave to sin. That way I don't have to fight it. Just whatever I do, I I have to deal with a guilty conscience, but I'll never have that insufferable withdrawal that people feel when they're trying to overcome sin. I'd rather be a slave to my circumstances. I'd rather just react in the moment and feel what I'm feeling and not worry about doing the right thing. Or slaves to other people. I'd rather just let somebody else tell me what to do rather than go out and be who God called me to be. And some people think that that's what Jesus is for them, and they're wrong. This is why people spend their whole lives in the church saying they're waiting for the will of God while they sit around and do nothing. And life passes them by and everybody else goes out and does great things and they sit back and say, well, I'm just waiting on the Lord. Even though they've got a giant book full of things God has already told them to do, the truth is they're afraid. They're afraid to step up and be a person, to have a relationship with God. That's what he wants. Many would rather be slaves than warriors. And what they do is they sit back, aimless, drifting in the wilderness, criticizing people that storm the promised land. And I agree with Teddy Roosevelt on this one. The critic doesn't count. Somebody who is in the arena will happily take criticism from somebody else who is in the arena. But the critic doesn't count. there's so many people, I love using this example because I experience it every day, but so many people that would never dream of pastoring a church, but they're happy to sit back and insult and blast and write nasty things about other people that are doing their best to preach and to shepherd the church. And they think it makes them spiritual. There is difficulty to the blessings of the abundant life that cause many to go away. There's difficulty in achieving peace with God. 
Because salvation and the experience of salvation involves death to yourself. Losing these things, things you constructed around you that you think define you. It's all got to die until you are naked and afraid before the Lord. Then he can rebuild it. Make something great. But many people would rather keep themselves on the throne and miss out. Victory over sin is difficult. Because temptation being defeated requires a radical change of habit. I have met way more people that refuse to overcome sin, not because they can't, but because they're comfortable. This is how I live my life, and I don't want to change my habits. I don't want to get up early in the morning. I'm a night owl. Even though every time I'm up late at night, I look at pornography and I sin, or I gamble on the internet and lose more money again. Yeah, I know that this relationship has caused me trouble, but we're comfortable with each other, and that's just kind of the way it is. It'd be, it'd be dis- uncomfortable to bring it up. They prefer to pay tribute to sin every once in a while than step up and say no. The completion of character is hard. Difficulty. Because in order to gain wisdom and make real change, you've got to face what is wrong and right about yourself. And sometimes facing what's right about yourself is harder. Because when you see something good where there's potential, it holds you to a standard. This could be about you. And many people would rather be ignorant of that and just float Because if they knew that I could overcome this, I could defeat that, I could walk without sin and see the abundant life of Christ, then they would be required to get up and do something about it, and that scares them to death. So they'd rather know nothing about themselves and just float through life. Love in your relationships is difficult, isn't it? Relationships are hard. They don't come easy. they got to be worked at day by day by day. And many people just say, I'd rather be lonely. I'd rather be lonely than be hurt again. Or, I'd rather be shallow than let anybody know me. There are people that are scared to death of letting somebody love them and be part of their life and being the rock for somebody else. So they spend their whole life making jokes and nobody ever knows who they are. It's difficult. And permission to thrive, man, difficulty. When you look at the permission given to you by Jesus to live your life, it's staggering and it's intimidating. And so many people would rather make excuses in order to immobilize themselves. They say, I'm going to find one good reason why I can't and hold on to that for dear life. I'm too old. I'm too young. I'm married. I'm single. The kids have moved out. The kids haven't moved out yet. I'm rich. I'm poor. I'm black. I'm white. I'm an immigrant. I'm a citizen. It's not the same for us anymore. Oh, my mother died. Oh, my father wasn't nice to me. Oh, my wife isn't any good. Oh, my husband cheated on me. We use these excuses to immobilize us. And we get relieved when these things happen because now I have a good excuse that everybody agrees with that makes me not have to do anything. People will feel sorry for me. They'll never be proud of me, but they're never going to look down on me for not trying because they feel sorry for me. That cowardice is surprisingly permitted in God's church. But it's shameful for us all. Many people like Demas. Remember Demas? He said, I, Paul said, Demas abandoned me because he loved this present world. Many people would rather dream of what could be than actually go out and fight for something. I would rather hold on to my daydreams than go out and shatter those daydreams that maybe get something real in my hands. I'd rather spend my whole life dreaming of the perfect woman than actually love somebody who's good And see what God makes of it. You can live your whole life with good enough if you're afraid to leave it behind. Verse 5. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes and said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, The land which we pass through to spy it out, is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bread for us. We're going to eat them for breakfast. We're going to chew them up and spit them out. Their protection is removed from them and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Moses and Aaron fall to their faces 
whether out of shock, whether they were afraid they were going to be killed, probably out of intercession to God and the people. But Joshua and Caleb very courageously stood up to 600,000 warriors and they tore their clothes, which you know is a sign of grief. And they reminded the people, number one, how good the land is. Number two, the fact that the favor of God was with them. There's the tabernacle. God dwells among us. And number three, that God has removed his protection from the Canaanites. Genesis 15, 16, God told Abraham, the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. But now it was. God was done with them. They had had 400 plus years to repent and they did it. So why not go? All that mattered to them was that God was with them. And so they were courageous. Here's something else you've got to know. God loves brave people. And he will help them every time. So many times we describe faith as being terrified and scared to death and mousy. But I hope God does it. God likes people that have a bold, courageous faith. Let's go. Lord, can I walk on the water too? 2 Chronicles 16, 9. The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless. God is looking for brave people that are going to try big things so that he can help them with his Holy Ghost power. Courage. It takes courage to live this life. But in Christ, if you're in Christ and you face these battles, you can only win. Now, they're real battles. You're still going to have to line up, downset hike. You're still going to play four quarters. You're still going to get banged around. You're still going to have to ice your knees after the game. But it's still victory only. You need courage. Courage, Christian. One more time through this list. What does courage look like for these things? Peace with God. Courage there means choosing to believe in spite of doubts and emotions. But giving yourself to the Lord in the face of all opposition. When the mob is chanting at you, deny Christ or it's the arena. You say, I will give up my life for Jesus. I'm not going to give these doubts the time of day in my head. I know whom I have believed. Courage to believe. Victory over sin. Courage means doing anything necessary to overcome your sin. It means you're not going to spend your life hiding your sins until you can get them under control but bringing them out so that your brothers and sisters can help you. It means changing your habits. Well, I need my computer for work. Well, break it over your knee if it's causing you to sin. Jesus said, cut off your right hand if it causes you to sin. Dig your right eye out and throw it away if it causes you to sin. It means you've got to defy your friends. Because if you have lousy friends and you try to do the right thing, they're going to try to pull you right back. We don't like the new you. Why? Because they don't like you? No, but because you're a reproach to them. If you do it, they can do it. And if they can do it, they have to do it. So now they're not comfortable anymore, so they want to bring you down. It means not settling for little vices in your life. Number three, completion of character. What's the courage? It's courage to let the Holy Spirit take you apart, man. It means taking the time to understand why you fear something. Taking the time to understand why something angers you. To understand, why does this make me so excited? It feels wrong, but this bit feels right. So what's in there, Lord, that we can draw out? It means that we're going to chase the ideal. We're going to give up the excuses. We're going to pursue Christ. I want to be more like Jesus every day. Love and relationships. What does courage mean? It means actually committing to the relationship. It means actually getting married. Actually having children. Not giving up when the going gets tough. Means going out of your way to love that new brother or son-in-law or sister-in-law or whatever it is. Not giving up when the going gets tough. That when somebody you love and that you have a responsibility to love says, I'm done with you. You say, well, I'm not done with you. I'm going to keep on loving you. Means you're taking responsibility. This marriage will not end on my watch. That's it. This friendship will not end on my watch. It might change. It might have to look different. But it's not over until I say it's over. And I'm never going to say that. And permission to thrive. Courage means accepting that you have a destiny from God. You have a life that he's given you to live. He's called you to exercise dominion over your life. And pursuing it with everything you've got. It means exposing yourself to failure. 
trying things that you might fail at. You've got to do that first if you want to be good at anything. You've got to step out and try. How many people have been called to be missionaries, but like, well, I, I just don't know which country to go to. It's not hard to buy a map and pray over the thing. It's not hard to make a few phone calls. Try, get out and do what God's called you to do. God loves brave people. Revelation 21, 7 through 8. The one who conquers will have this heritage. What heritage? Heaven, the new Jerusalem. The one who conquers, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, and there's a longer list, but let's focus on that one. As for the cowardly, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Cowardice is on the level of the worst sins for the Lord, such as sorcery, sexual immorality, idolatry, and murder. You can't duck your life forever if you're in Christ. God insists. He's insisting right now. Abundant life is for those who are willing to walk the earth like conquerors in Christ. Is that you? Are you really ready to slay some giants in your life? The giant of depression that you're letting shake you around like a rag doll? The giant of pornography that you're just kind of hoping will just kind of go away on its own? The giant of laziness? You can have the whole world, but you just can't get up on time? The giant of a bad marriage that you might actually have, or are you going to get up there and slay that giant? I'm not talking about your husband. I'm talking about the marriage itself. <laughs> your fear of failure? Well, if I never try, I can never fail. Coward. They're bred for you, Christian. You've got to take that leap and actually live the life you've been given. And enough hiding behind this veneer of Christian fatalism. That we're these jellyfish blobby people that float through life and have nothing interesting about us except that we go to church and call that Christianity? Jesus said abundant life. Get out there and make something of it. Make disciples, yes, but to do all the things that I've commanded you. Go out and, going out and living life in Christ. All of it. Becoming a whole person in Jesus. You might start small. But those giants are going to fall down before you if you will just get out there and fight. You get up to the plate, you might strike out, but you'll definitely strike out if you don't swing. Verse 10, then all the congregation said, stone them with stones. But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. God intervenes in glory. People start to riot. They're going to stone Moses, Aaron, Joshua, and Caleb. And here comes the pillar of cloud and fire. And that's our cliffhanger for tonight. We're going to see what the Lord had to say next time. But to get back to our question, is it appropriate to speak of fighting and racing and struggling towards the goal of your life as a Christian? Y'all, it's the only way. I want you to march on your promised land. I want your tanks to roll into the abundant life and said, enough's enough. We've got a bigger army than you and we're, we're going to stop being scared. I want you to fight and strive and struggle and bite and kick and scratch and claw your way into that which is yours in Christ Jesus. And stop thinking, well, if it's hard, it must not be God's will. That's not true. God enables you to do hard things. You're a son of God in Christ Jesus. This life is your inheritance. So stop stepping back and living small. You've got the spirit of almighty God dwelling within you. Enough with good enough. Stop camping in the wilderness and calling it salvation. Well, we're not in Egypt anymore. That's great. But Jesus came out of the empty tomb. He didn't just come back to life. He came out and lived again. Consider what could your life be if you faced every giant in front of you right now? Just, I mean, think of them. List them. Make a list with your husband or your wife or your friends. Just get together. What am I facing? And just forget about strategy. Just think, what, if, what would it look like if I got rid of all of them in 10 years? What about five? What about one? What about by the end of this year? Well, that just sounds like carnal goal setting. No, man, it's a battle plan. I'm going to take this life and give it to Jesus Christ. And you know he'll help you. And if you've got sovereign God power behind you, you're unstoppable, Christian. You'll see your mindset totally change. Your marriage will resurrect. Your career, your personality will transform into the image of Christ. 
Because 2 Timothy 1.7 says that God gave us not a spirit of fear, but of power. What's the difference between fear and power? Fear runs away. Power says, put them up. Fear ran away from Goliath. David ran out to Goliath and said, I'm going to kill you and leave your bones to be eaten by the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. I'm going to chop your head off and carry it home. And we're going to store your sword in the tabernacle so that everybody will know that there is a God in Israel. That's power. Let us agree together to be ferocious, manful Christians who are not deterred by fear. Fear of the past, fear of the present, fear of the future. Because as I've said before, there is no limit to what one man can accomplish when he is walking in God's will. But it is a fight. It's a battle. It's a war. Paul uses the word agonia. That's where we get the word agony. But you know what it meant back then? A wrestling match. Bare knuckle UFC brawling in the street. That's what it takes to achieve the abundant life. But we stand daily on the edge of abundance. Desert, oasis, old life, abundant life. Where will you be found when that final trumpet sounds and you are called to give an account of the life that God gave to you?